Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 90, December 5th to December 11th, 1862. Last week, we fought the Battle of Cane Hill in Arkansas, as well as raided Hartsville in Tennessee. Grant has started his attempts at Vicksburg, which will fizzle out, especially after the defeat at Chickasaw Bayou. This week, we will go over the Battle of Prairie Grove in Arkansas. Before we do that, though, just a couple of quick announcements. We are posting Patreon content. I mentioned last week that we would be doing a two-part movie review of Gods and Generals, and figure it is just about as good as any time to do it here, right? That has a depiction of the Battle of Fredericksburg, which we're going to talk about next week here, and why not go ahead and get that off the books because I have had that slated for quite some time. So if you want to hear me talk about the three-hour movie, uh, Gods and Generals, then you can check out the Patreon link and that will be posted here shortly. So be on the lookout for that. I think also, just to add on that, probably make part two here January most likely, that will be that Patreon content will keep rolling there, uh, and uh, that way you'll get those back-to-back. So we'll have part one and then part two, breaking it up as I should usually do when watching Gods and Generals. I, I wish I had done that the first time I watched it all the way through. Let's break it up in half, one one and two, because it is, it is a fairly long movie. So uh, once again... Patreon link is in the description, and your support for the show is is greatly appreciated. When last we left off in Arkansas, Cane Hill had been a setback for Hindman and his Confederate army. Marmaduke and his cavalry had been victimized by the ever-aggressive Blunt and his Kansas division. Despite the setback, there was opportunity in the defeat. Marmaduke would write for Hindman to join him, and perhaps they could catch Blunt and destroy him before moving into Missouri. Theophilus Holmes, still stationed at Little Rock, was a roller coaster of indecision, wishing for Hindman to move up, but then changing his mind. Hindman was determined, though, and convinced his superior that an attack was the best course of action. Moving out in early December, the Confederate morale would be high. Skirmishing would occur at the same ground as the Battle of Cane Hill in November. But despite Blunt's sometimes reckless behavior, he would not be trapped and was able to slip away from the Confederates. 12,000 men made up the Army of the Trans-Mississippi, so they were more than willing to pursue the Federal Army. John Frost commanded one division of Hindman's force, which numbered about 6,000 or so men. You remember Frost, of course. He was present from our early days at Camp Jackson. Now, Frost does not have a stellar military career, if you recall, as well as he does okay in this campaign commanding. Francis Shoup will have 3,200 men from Arkansas and command the other division. 
Shoup is an interesting case. Much like Pemberton, he was born in the North. Because of this, he was often mistrusted. There's actually common themes here between these officers that are born in the North. Pemberton is often distrusted because he is a Yankee, right? And Shoup is no different. So there are always these murmurings about federal officers who were born in the South and likewise Confederate officers who were born in the North and how their loyalties could be perhaps mixed. The Indiana native Shoup had attended West Point and served in a Zouave militia prior to the war. He will go on to participate in several campaigns, including Vicksburg and Atlanta. Supply issues had hampered a potential increase in numbers for this army. Many potential combatants had been left at Fort Smith because they did not have rifles. These would arrive, but not in time to join the battle. Earlier in the year, a supply vessel had been captured, attempting to make a run from Vicksburg, which would have seen the troops properly equipped. Leaving some behind, the rebels would use what they had on hand. Despite having a capable force, though, Hyman would call off any continued pursuit of Blunt. The brash commander, it seemed, would have to wait to get his comeuppance. But what exactly changed? We've already discussed the federal dispositions with the Kansas Division under James Blunt. Francis Heron, the commander of the 3rd Division, would be placed in charge of the 2nd as well. James Totten had been replaced in the favor of James Houston, a career soldier and probably a better option. We have sort of mentioned how the army is divided. Heron and his men were actually around the old battlefield of Wilson's Creek. When Blunt is pressed by Heinemann, he does a handful of things. The first is he's going to publicize that he has beaten back 25,000 of the enemy, which was not true. Confederate forces were not quite so numerous, and the Federals had not beaten them back, but rather held them off. Secondly, he's going to request assistance from Heron, who will begin an impressive march to meet him. While impressive, it was not without hardship. Hampered by poor footwear and the usual supply problem, which we have discussed that is associated with this area, the Union infantry would suffer much in terms of straggling, with many men falling out. Blunt would request most of the cavalry that Heron had, which would play into the large story of the battle. Hyman's strategy would be to shift as a result of the reports that Heron was moving south to unite the Army of the Frontier. Now was the opportunity to defeat the two sides separately. The plan was to move north with the entire army, defeat Heron and his Missouri contingent before then turning to face Blunt. Key to this strategy was the junction town of Prairie Grove that sat north of Cane Hill. If the rebels could get there first, they stood a good chance of being able to succeed. 
leaving a force to check Blunt, Hyman would move out. Heron's cavalry would be in the way, but they were not expecting to run into their rebel counterparts while camped on the road. Shelby's cavalry would surprise the Union troopers on the morning of December 7th. This attack would put the 7th Missouri to rout, capturing several hundred of them and putting the rest to flight. The 1st Arkansas would also not be able to stem the tide, although at one point the Union troopers were able to exploit a mistake on the part of Shelby, turning the tide on the attacker, even forcing him to surrender, capturing two pieces of artillery. Well-timed Confederate reinforcements would keep Shelby and the captured pieces on the southern side. Most importantly to the battle, though, was that the road was now clear to Prairie Grove. I think it is interesting to note that many of the Confederate cavalry were wearing blue uniforms, which had allowed for their undetected approach. Shelby's cavalry were famous for wearing this color, which would serve him well in his Missouri raid of 1864. At Prairie Grove, they would be deployed as infantry to extend the right flank of the rebel line. This is a common theme, even with not a regular cavalry, where the Union forces are often better supplied and the Confederate cavalry does see early success in terms of capturing supplies from the North. We see this in Tennessee with the likes of Forrest and Morgan, amongst others, where when they capture these supplies, if it's winter and you don't have sufficient winter clothing, but you have a nice Union overcoat that you can wear, you're probably going to wear that instead of deciding, nah, I can't wear this, I have to really suffer, right, instead of wearing the blue of the enemy. So that is going to mix some things up here, you know, especially during winter and throughout the war as the Confederacy becomes less and less well-equipped, they are going to rely heavily on captured supplies. So you're going to run into situations like this. We'll talk about guerrillas and irregular warfare in general and how not only is this capturing of Union supplies and wearing Union uniforms something that was necessary in terms of supply, perhaps. Generally speaking, though, irregulars are going to be better supplied than the average Confederate soldier, which we'll talk about. But nonetheless, it's also going to be a strategy for them, right? They're going to want to hide from the enemy, avoid detection, maybe even assist in ambushing, bushwhacking, right? The the enemy because if you think about it, you're not a regular soldier anyway. So if you get captured, chances are that's not going to necessarily end well for you. So you might as well take any advantage that you can in the field, including this sort of faux pas in terms of warfare. So that is a little bit of a different situation than what we have here with regular army forces. I do want to paint a picture of the battlefield, and hopefully on the website I will post some real pictures because it's actually a very picturesque scene. Prairie Grove is a high rise of ground, with some wooded terrain on the top. Several houses line the bottom of the high ground, including the Borden and Morton houses, which anchored the position. The Borden house was a two-story structure, the largest on the battlefield, complete with an orchard. 
two houses belonging to the Rogers family sat between those two locations. Further up the Fayetteville Cane Road, which was the direction Heron's force was going to be coming from, was the Illinois River, dry at the time of the battle. In between the river and the high ground was the Crawford Prairie. This flat ground was full of tall grass, as well as crops from the farmhouses that surrounded. With the Confederates holding the high ground, they had a commanding position of the surrounding area. There was some high ground that the Federal forces could exploit on the northern side of the field, but it was not as commanding as Prairie Grove. Although it was winter, there were trees and brush enough that would provide excellent cover. So too, there would be excellent cover on the Crawford Prairie, coming in the form of the tall grasses and the cornstalks of the field. This would play a role in the battle, at least initially, because it would cover any advance by Union troops toward the Confederates. It should also be pointed out that many of the Confederates had received new butternut uniforms, so in the winter, they were pretty well camouflaged with the terrain. I saw at least one account of the Federals being surprised by rebel troops, because they were concealed so well. Heron would find out that the battle had started by seeing the Union cavalry stream past. Reportedly, the commander would actually shoot a retreating cavalryman out of the saddle, but that is a conflicting report, so whether it is true or not, certainly the sentiment is there, perhaps. He didn't want his cavalry to be running away. Once arrived on the field, Heron would start to deploy his two divisions. After the battle, Heron would actually claim that he was expecting Hindman and the Army of the Trans-Mississippi to be there. It was very apparent that he thought he was just facing cavalry, still under Marmaduke, who had been sent to delay him. Although Heron's divisions were badly depleted, they could still bring 20 pieces of artillery to the field, as opposed to the Confederate 10 pieces. Heron would move his cannon into positions that would dominate the rebels. They would eventually silence the enemy pieces. Hindman would have Shoup's smaller sized division, as well as the cavalry to begin with. Frost's larger sized division was holding up the rear. Now why was this? This is because Blunt's division was still a big concern. It pays to have a wild reputation in certain situations, that is for sure. Certainly, it would be advantageous to have that reputation on a Civil War battlefield. In fact, some of Blunt's cavalry had shown up with artillery and lobbed some shells at Hyman's force, which would freak out the rebel commander. Hyman would set up his headquarters at the Prairie Grove Church and leave the battle up to his subordinate commanders for the most part. Heron would use William Orm's brigade to assault the position after he had successfully softened the area. The 20th Wisconsin and the 19th Iowa will lead the assault. They would be met by Fagan's full brigade of Arkansas regiments. Both of the attacking regiments would be roughly handled in the assault. The 20th would suffer 49% casualties, while the 19th would suffer 55%, the highest of any regiment on the day. 
The 19th would actually take many of the casualties in the orchard of the Borden house. This firefight was particularly fierce, both sides writing about the intensity of the action. Critically, the 94th Illinois was held in complete reserve and would not participate. This was possibly because Orm was a former commander of the regiment and so it would keep them out of harm's way, especially as a result of the high casualty percentages. Despite having successfully beaten off the initial Union probes toward the line, Confederate counterattacks were going to be dissuaded by the artillery positions. Houston's 2nd Division would be the next to assault the ridge line. Now rightfully so, you might ask why Houston would try it with the 26th Indiana and 37th Illinois, while the 20th Iowa would extend the right flank of the Federal line. Two regiments had just been hit with heavy casualties, so the question remains why go ahead and put two more regiments relatively in the same spot. Repulse of the counterattack probably led there to be the conclusion there could be a chance for a successful breakthrough. Fagan's brigade, though, fell back behind the Borden House in a tighter formation. These troops, as well as Shelby's, would receive the fresh regiments. Shoup had requested for reinforcements when faced with this new threat from the enemy. Hyman would oblige and insert Shaver's brigade from Frost's division which was starting to arrive on the battlefield. These regiments would start to plug the various gaps that were starting to form in the line, solidifying the position. The 26th Indiana would be repulsed first, the 37th standing their ground for a period of time. Now you remember the 37th, its lieutenant colonel was John C. Black, whom we met at Pea Ridge in the Leetown sector of the battle on the first day he would understand that the odds were fairly heavily stacked against him. Still, his regiment would actually punish Adams' regiment from the newly arrived brigade, decimating their ranks once again around the Borden House before withdrawing in good order. Emboldened by now a second defense of the ridge, Confederate infantry would attempt to sally out of their strong position, perhaps even to capture some of the more advanced guns, maybe even assault across the Crawford Prairie. It's understandable that the Confederates, who had been receiving the heavy artillery fire, would see some advanced batteries and say, well, it'd be really nice if we could capture those, and having just beaten off another attack by your enemy, you can come to the conclusion that if we charge those pieces now, all the momentum swinging our way, we can we can capture them, and we can really turn the tide of this battle, but Heron's Guns that are already further back in position and a rallied defense line would discourage the Confederates from obtaining any prizes. Now the action had started to swing to the Confederate left and the Union right. It was near here the 20th Iowa as well as some guns had set up, hopefully to make sure the Confederates did not flank them. It would be near here around the Morton House that Blunt and his division would begin to arrive later in the day, around 4 p.m. Blunt had been held in check by a cavalry force that numbered only around 400. Once he realized he had been deceived and that Heron would not be coming to join him, 
the aggressive commander would move his division in an effort to combine forces. At first, Blunt would take the Fayetteville Road, which, as we have discussed, runs through Perry Grove. If he had taken this route, he would have collided directly with Frost and his blocking division. Hindman had been prepared for the possibility and would wish to not be surprised by the Kansans. Rather than march up the Fayetteville Road, the lead brigade would march toward their supply base, taking them around the flank of the Confederate cavalry. Shifting east, Blunt was then able to come in on the right flank of Heron. This was actually a pretty advantageous move because it was able to essentially link him up with Heron and then also come into a position where he could still threaten the Confederate forces. Now, Blunt's 2nd and 3rd Brigades were under William Cloud and William Weir. Cloud was originally from Ohio, seeing some service as a volunteer in the Mexican-American War before relocating to Kansas. He has under him Thomas Ewing of the 11th Kansas, the adoptive brother-turned-brother-in-law and close friend of William T. Sherman. Prior to hostilities, Thomas had been a secretary for Zachary Taylor, and had been a moderate in the Kansas question, participating in the Peace Conference of 1861. Ewing will go on to serve in Congress after the war. Weir had been the Attorney General of Kansas prior to the war. The 1st Brigade was under the command of Frederick Salmon, still in the doghouse from the Battle of Newtonia, and is going to be held in the rear. The Confederate line would be supplemented by the remainder of Frost's division, one brigade commanded by Mosby Parsons, the other by John Roan. Parsons was a veteran of the war with Mexico and had already seen action in the Trans-Mississippi. Roan was a politician and not a very effective commander. He had under him mostly converted Texas cavalrymen, who had been punished for poor performance and moved to foot soldiers. There had been some skirmishing earlier in the campaign, and these Texas cavalrymen had run away without giving too much of a fight. So when you have horses at a premium, you're obviously going to most likely give them to those troopers who are going to show that they can be an effective force on the battlefield. So these particular soldiers are going to be converted into foot soldiers as a result. But this also is going to be a common theme throughout the war, so keep that in mind where there's this dearth in terms of manpower and also supply. So whether it's lack of horses or just the need for more infantry as opposed to cavalry, there's going to be a lot of regiments throughout the war that are going to be converted in this way. The 20th Iowa combined with the 1st Indian Home Guard and would begin the assault on the left of the newly formed line. Dandridge McRae and an improvised brigade would meet them, beating back this first attempt, although reportedly McRae was nowhere to be found during this engagement. Confederates were beaten back as they attempted to pursue the two regiments. Weir would attempt to assault the Confederate position now, advancing by the Morton House. The Kansan had a penchant for aggressive action, much like his superior. Parsons and the rest of the Confederates would hold. 
William Clark's regiment was detached from Roan, the best unit he had under his command. It would be at this point that there was a great amount of firing on the field. Heron would support Blunt the best he could with artillery and small arms fire from the 26th and 37th Illinois. There were some veterans of the battles of Pea Ridge and Wilson's Creek who would write that it was the heaviest firing they had ever witnessed. Parsons, though, was not satisfied with this grand display. He would yell to his men, My brave soldiers, these cutthroats stand between you and your outraged homes. Cut them down and stamp them into the earth. Give them cold steel. Charge bayonet. Despite the inspiring words, Parsons would charge the Union positions with two of his regiments bogged down and unable to join the mass of men. He also forgot the artillery advantage the Federals currently held. Blunt's artillery would pour fire into the oncoming Missouri regiments, turning them from the field and effectively ending the battle as darkness began to fall. To the dissatisfaction of the Confederate forces, Hindman would begin a withdrawal. Many believed they were moving out to begin a new attack, but this would not be the case. The Army of the Frontier was now combined, and the Confederates had expended valuable resources. But it wasn't just the loss of resources. They had actually sustained heavy casualties. 1,400 Confederates were casualties, including 400 or so deserters, compared to 1,200 Union losses. A truce would be called. Hyman conferencing with Blunt and Heron to discuss the collection of dead and wounded, as well as a prisoner exchange. The ulterior motive was to allow his army to escape back to Fort Smith during this conference. Blunt would afterwards cry foul on the rebel general. Regardless, the Confederates were allowed to slip away, leaving behind many killed and wounded. During the night, hogs had descended on the battlefield, the rebels attempting to save the lives with small arms and the dead with wooden barriers. The rebels would begin to desert in droves on the retreat, some switching sides to join the Union. There was one last action to unfurl in the raid on Van Buren, but I will mention that another time. Heinemann's dream of moving into Missouri was over, Prairie Grove would mark one of the last offensive actions in the Trans-Mississippi for the Rebels. Now, there's always the question, though, what if Heinemann had been able to break the Army of the Frontier at Prairie Grove? What if he continued the attack? There's all these what-ifs, right? In order to keep his army a cohesive unit, it probably would have been better to continue the campaign, despite this lack of resources. Remember, there are men at Fort Smith who can join the army, so he could replenish losses in either case. But the question still remains, if he wins and moves into Missouri, is it going to be any different than some of these other Confederate incursions into that state where they stay for a brief amount of time before the Union armies are able to concentrate forces is he able to move on to maybe Fort Scott? You know, Fort Scott's always this sort of magical target that the Confederate Army has. You remember Ben McCullough had that as his target prior to Pea Ridge. 
Is he going to be able to do any of those things? The answer most likely is probably not, but he would probably have diverted more resources away from other campaigns. And you remember a last episode, I talked about how there's not a whole lot of concert of action that the Confederates are going to display. So his offensive into Missouri might have changed things around a little bit in terms of how the pieces on the board were laid out. But really, at the end of the day, it probably would not have been this big retaking of St. Louis and and Missouri shifting into the Confederate orbit. So we can draw this episode to a close. This week we covered Prairie Grove. Unfortunately, this is going to be overshadowed by our main event next week. Next week, we're going to fight the Battle of Fredericksburg, which is going to be a huge disaster for the Army of the Potomac. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.